Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Today is, again, a little different. My guest today is Samir Salty, who's a founder and managing partner of Zook Capital. Zook has a distinctive dual-track strategy consisting of technology growth and renewable energy infrastructure, which was designed and implemented by Samir. Today, Zook's investment funds invest in projects and companies in the renewable energy and environment infrastructure space, including sectors such as electric vehicles, charging, waste to energy, energy efficiency, and distributed small-scale energy. Zook has invested in the sustainable economy since 2000 and has almost 900 million euros under management and is based in London. With almost 30 years experience in private equity, investment banking, and technology, Samir is an avid fan of technology and its power to transform societies and is the author of numerous editorial pieces on the role of technology within the sustainability revolution. I am really delighted to welcome Samir to this conversation because sustainability is an issue that I think a lot of people care about in today's world. So welcome, Samir. Thank you, Anita. Good to be here with you. <laughs> so Samir, I would like to start off with a little bit of your personal journey and your interest around sustainability and the premise with which you started Zook. My journey started in Lebanon when I was growing up. At 16, I left the country where it was during the war, uh, suffering from a lot of resource uh, scarcity. So we learned to care for each other and we learned to do a lot of volunteer work and to manage resources very efficiently. That stayed with me when I went to the U.S. and I did my formative years in studying and working. And that was the root of my interest in sustainability and having impact on the world and the environment around us. I spent about 13 years in the U.S. I studied undergrad and graduate. I worked in technology for seven years. I worked in finance and then I moved to London and with finance jobs at JP Morgan. And then I set up Zook in 1999 to focus on technology and sustainability has been one of the early areas we focused on with the carbon neutral company. Nice. So when you talk about sustainability, it's a quite a broad term. So is there any specific areas within sustainability that you're particularly passionate about and that you focus on within Zook? You're right to say that sustainability is broad and different people interpret it in different ways. I actually use a very wide range of interpretation of sustainability and it's my own. I define it in asking five questions. Whatever you do, is it good for me? Is it good for my family? Is it good for my community? Is it good for the country and is it good for the world? And if it's not good for any of them, then it's not sustainable. Because whatever we do has to be aligned in terms of the interest of the individual, as well as the people we care about, our family, as well as our community, whichever way you define community, and to the world. You can't be caring about one thing and not the others. And that goes starts with the environment. And we learned a lot about what does it need to take care of the environment and take care of our earth where we live and inhabit. But to me, sustainability goes beyond that. It goes into implementing the principles into every aspect of life, in the political life, in the legal life, in the business life, the professional, economic, 
And I see it as a foundation for the future and a future world. Well, Samir, it's very inspiring to hear you say that. And I know that today it's it's more mainstream sustainability and there are lots of funds, both big and small, that have a focus on impact and social causes and sustainability. But I'm imagining 1999 not to be one of those years where people are thinking about sustainability as a place where you can make an impact and potentially make money for your investors. So curious, when you started this venture and focused on these aspects, how did you convince your partners and investors to come along with you and do good and also make money? What's amazing is a lot of investors had interest in the topic, even at the time in 1999. And uh, we started with an investment in a carbon neutral company. But today you hear the word carbon neutral and we helped support two entrepreneurs in launching that business and creating the biggest brand globally in carbon neutral. The way we thought about it, we thought that we need to limit emissions, but there was no regulatory environment at the time for it. So it was voluntary. And the best way to do it is to create a marketplace. So our initial thinking is we create a marketplace for trading carbon credits. And not directly, but indirectly with the companies, with the clients. And we thought that if we can achieve that, then we can really build a big business on the back of it and do good. And that's how we started. It wasn't easy. It took years, but we managed through it. And some of the investors were really strong backers of it. I see. Interesting. When you and I were chatting about this podcast, you talked to me about um, not just your passion for sustainability, but also your personal passion around education. And it's one that is probably near and dear to a number of people. It's something that that I am very interested in having two kids myself. And I think given the situation that we're in with the current pandemic crisis, it's probably top of mind for a lot of people. So I want to focus the rest of the podcast to talk a little bit about the education sector, the big trends that are going on and the opportunity that exists for entrepreneurs. It's very interesting to create a segue from sustainability to education. And let me explain how I view online education as a critical part of sustainability. When we were immersed ourselves over 20 years in sustainability, we began to understand the, the drivers and the impact on the world beyond just the climate change. For example, Technology, as exciting as it is, and as a big believer as I am in it, is taking a lot of regular jobs away, creating new jobs, but taking a lot of jobs away. What's happening is things are moving so fast that there isn't enough time or capacity or traditional ways to educate and train people for the new future. So the only way to do it is online education. And when I look at sustainability, I came to the conclusion that one of the top priorities is online education to, to retool people in mass to be able to take care of the future world we're living in. It's not just about saving travel to a building and saving having physical building, but how do you prepare the new generations for the future, including training them in the principles of sustainability, but also in the principles of technology to be applied to everything we do. So that's how Sustainability, in my view, is linked to technology, uh, to education. But for me, education has started a long time ago. I grew up in a household where education is a priority. 
And uh, getting an education and a good education is that the top number one thing you do at all costs. So this is where I went to the U.S. and, and focused on my education. It cost me a lot of money. I worked and studied during that time in, in the U.S., but focusing on undergraduate and graduate was a key aspect. What is fascinating for me was when I was doing my master's at MIT, I was in business school and everybody was doing a business plan for a different kind of business. I actually decided with a partner to do an online thesis on education. The model of MIT to be implemented in the Middle East for technology and management and to act as a venture capital hub in the Middle East. But what was interesting about that is I called it the virtual campus. So even in 92, 93, I thought, why replicate physical teachers? Why replicate all the knowledge that was developed in the, in the US and the top universities? Why can't we link through the internet to MIT, Harvard, Stanford, and the top universities and leverage all of that knowledge and create a virtual campus that is foldable. Because of the war in Lebanon, I figured, you know, you, you, you can't build a building that will be destroyed. A physical building will be destroyed, but knowledge won't be destroyed. So the idea was a virtual campus that is actually foldable and taken away and virtually connected to all the data centers of education around the world. So that's how I started with the virtual campus in 1992. Wow, that's really ahead of your time. 1992, that's I think even before Amazon started. So you're quite ahead and you obviously have been thinking about this for a long time. Before we get into the details of where you are today, I wanted to just take a moment to talk about the education landscape. When you think about online education, there's different goals different approaches and different focuses that a lot of different companies have when they're tackling online education. There's the audacities of the world that are much more around skill-based gaps for companies. There's companies that are more focused on the learning problem itself and making learning available to people that don't have access and now can because of technology. So curious if you can just take a few minutes to give our audience some background on the online education landscape, the way you see it, and maybe a little bit about where you think the opportunities are for technology to really make an impact. So the world of education is probably one of the biggest areas that exists in terms of opportunity for impact and for business. It's a $7 trillion industry globally, depending on how you define it from a high level educations to high school education, tertiary education, K-12, uh, nursery level, and uh, skill-based training. So education is wide and deep in all aspects. What is very important is that we are living in a world where lifelong education has become very important versus having a certificate and being able to do something and stopping at that point. So, so I encourage all aspects of education in, in every part of the world. But what's important to me is two things. One, the speed at which we can retool people and preparing people for the future and future generations and creating an opportunity for low-income countries 
to be able to catch up and ramp up their education capability because that's the only way we can create social equality and wealth around the world. So those are drivers. And this is why even when I was at MIT, I did a nonprofit work at the time helping a, a phenomenal social entrepreneur to create an organization called Artists for Humanity, hmm. where after school, poor, we would take poor students and teach them how to learn art and become artists, train them in art, and then engage them in a positive way in the society and the social environment. And that is quite valuable. And that's education as well. So it's not just the degree education that we think about. And then late, later years, I participated and partnered with an organization called World Links, which is an offshoot of the World Bank. I eventually became the chairman of it, where we would go to developing countries and partner with the Ministry of Education to train master teachers to integrate technology in the education process. So we train teachers to use technology in the education process, to teach students how to do research, how to learn, how to do their analysis. And then they would train other teachers and to be able to bring those countries and their education process into the 20th and 21st century. But what I realized that unless you do it for profit as a social venture, you can't scale it to the level that one should scale it. You can't spend a lot of time and resources trying to raise money for it. Already the world, even in the developing countries, spends a lot of money on education. It's a question of directing those resources in the right, most efficient way and the most high quality way to really have the biggest impact. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. So if I understand correctly, you're saying there's opportunity across the board when it comes to online education. You're specifically focused on online education that can impact the broader society as a whole, specifically around low-income countries. The model is not just targeted towards people who can just pay money, but also people that don't have access today to good education. Is that correct? Yes, and there is more to that. Let, let me take you through the successful experience we've had in South Africa in a company called Get Smarter, where there is a small investment company within Zoo called Digami focused on the impact Africa technology, impact Africa investing. I went to South Africa and I asked, is there an online education company there? And I was very happy to find out that there's a company called Get Smarter that never got funding from an outside, it was self-funded, and was able to achieve something that no company in the world has achieved, which is a 93% graduation rate of an online professional courses education. What so grade was it? On professional education. Ah, okay. So people who want to switch career, they want to take a course in AI or cybersecurity or or fintech, and they want to use it and leverage it to actually shift their education capability and their certification for, for the jobs. And at the time, Coursera and other companies around the U.S. and the world had a different model called the MOOCs. Yes. Where they were a supermarket-like type of education offering, but the graduation rate at the time was really low, 3-4%, because people weren't engaged in, in, and it wasn't interactive. 
what the company Get Smarter in South Africa did was create an interactive model, an engaging model, and follow-up model with the students where they measured and quantified the performance of students. They put them in small groups and created discussion forums, group works, and as a result of it, their graduation rate was the highest in the world. And they were the first to apply this model where you can charge for these courses. So it wasn't a $50 course. It was more expensive than that, but you got the value for it. Hmm. And you were, were engaged to graduate with a certificate. And I partnered with the top universities of the world, MIT, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Columbia, and others to create these classes and offer them to students all over the world. Eventually, they sold to, to you in the U.S. Uh, very successfully. And today, they probably educated over 200,000 people. Wow, that's amazing. So I think you touch upon a very important core challenge that we're hearing, I am seeing with my children, which is motivation around online learning. I see my kids, they're online school, but they're not as engaged, they're not as motivated as if it was um, a physical interaction. There was a recent survey actually conducted in Florida, grade six through 12, around the online education experience. And they said 52% of the students don't feel motivated to complete distance learning assignment. So what you're saying about Get Smarter and what it achieved seems really phenomenal. What was the secret ingredient or what is it that they did to get engagement that seems to be so hard to do online? So I want to talk a little bit about Get Smarter, the founders of Get Smarter, and how it led to the current focus of Balenciaga, an investment that I'm a founding investor in it. Uh, in Get Smarter, they had to do more to be able to sell the courses. So just putting the courses online wasn't enough for people to pay for it. So they were driven by the business model and by the ability to really provide them something really valuable an interactive education where they emotionally engage the student in the education process, where the learning has increased, as well as the certificate at the end of it, as well as the interaction with the cohort. And that's what they did differently. And that model has been learned and developed by the US after Get Smarter really led the path in it. But what's fascinating about Get Smarter is the two founders, entrepreneurs who are brothers, are amazing in their own right. And one of them is very passionate about education called Robert Pedder. And, and I got to become very close with the two brothers and specifically Robert, we stayed in touch after they sold their business to, to you. And we kept talking about how do we have the biggest impact on education today? There will be a lot of you know, business models for universities and online training, skill-based training out there but we wanted to tackle the most important area, which is K-12, where K-12 teaching has been the same for hundreds of years in terms of sitting in a classroom behind a desk with a teacher giving instruction. And when we thought about it is we thought that we could have the biggest impact by creating Valencia and Valencia Institute that changes the way education is delivered. And the heart of the offering is the following. Historically, good education relied on a good teacher or a great teacher. 
If you happen to have a great teacher, you were emotionally engaged and you were attracted to the subject and that teacher was able to extract that excitement from you and really channel the energy toward the topic. Uh, but to be able to do that, you have to be a subject expert, you have to be an advisor, you have to be a mentor, you have to be a teaching delivery person, you have to be a paper uh, grader. So you have to do a lot of job, and this is why it's difficult to find good teachers. What we thought is to break the education process into components where we specialize the learning design separately, where how to teach is done before the teacher walks into the classroom. So we break it into learning design facilitators, coaches, tutors, mentors, and we specialize different groups in their ability. And the teachers become facilitators who are able to emotionally engage the students in the topic. They don't have to be the best subject expert with 50 years experience in, in the topic, but they have to be able to engage the students hmm, in the topic. Interesting. And in a similar way to the electric vehicle car market. So a lot of people tried with the COVID-19 to move, to take their curriculum and move it remotely. It doesn't work this way. And I'll give you an example from the electric vehicle market. In the old days, the traditional car manufacturers would take an existing car design and try to put a battery in it and turn it into an EV. But that didn't go very far because to create an electric vehicle, you have to redesign the car from scratch with a totally new thinking for an EV car. And that's what they're doing now. They're designing separate models, separate designs, separate performance, separate measurement in the EV car. And the same is needed in education. You can't take the traditional model and really just turn it remotely. We differentiate between remote education and online education as a result of it. Online education has to be redesigned in the way that you can deliver it efficiently so we can scale because our objective is to create the largest school in the world and to have the highest impact in the world in this segment of education. So when you say K through 12, it's the entire K through 12 that Valencia Institute is catering towards. Is that correct? Today it's uh, 8 to 12, 8 to 13, and very soon 7 to 13. Okay stop us from thinking how do we engage earlier years through online and physical. When yeah. you talk about online education, doesn't mean necessarily that it has to be 100% online. For certain early years, there is a physical type of environment that is needed for sure, and an emotional uh, encounter that is very difficult to replace. But we believe that the year 7 to 12 or 7 to 13 can be done fully online or in a blended way. It could be partly online, partly physical, but the education itself is delivered online and maybe provide in a physical environment, a co-working space, for example, not a traditional school environment where it could be small cohorts, not a big school where you can interact with colleagues from the same physical area or globally. Right, right. If I think about that age group, the thing about schools is it doesn't, like you said, just provide education, right? In some schools, meals are provided for low-income cohorts of, of students. There's other elements that a school provides if they're working parents, that the children are at school in a safe environment. So 
Is there a specific target or demographic that you're looking at for the uh, online education initiative? The whole world is a target. And let me explain that. We believe that we can deliver superior education through online education. And online education doesn't mean it's ex exclusive from physical environment. You could be in a school, but learning online mm. or online delivery. And the difference with, with that is the data analytics that wraps around the online education that is able to measure the student emotional engagement in a topic or a classroom that you couldn't do that before. Before you would sit in the classroom and be taught by a teacher and the teacher would judge, are you good or bad or what their perception of you is. But in today's world with online education, we have data points that can tell us how engaged is the student in the topic, what level are they at, what can we do to, to help them in the process. And we can deliver that at a fraction of the cost of a traditional education sector. I see. The world spends a lot of money on education, but it's not necessarily the most efficient education delivery. So we can deliver the highest quality of education with the highest impact at the lowest cost possible. Interesting. And, and does, what about people with learning disabilities? Does it cater to people like that? Very important point, because that online education can accommodate for that. You, for learning disabilities, for exceptional students who want to move fast, who want to absorb a lot of information, why should that be held back? For students with disabilities, we can measure what works and what doesn't work with them. For students who are being bullied in an environment, this is a great safe environment for them. So it, what it does, it provides the flexibility for the future world of education of the highest quality at the lowest cost possible. Interesting. Obviously, one of the things I look for is feeders into universities, which high schools are recognized. How does an online school build that brand and reputation and qualification to be recognized by the universities where parents want their children to ultimately go? That's a very important question. But let's look at it. Let's step back and look at it. University is an important traditional thing that people aspire to go to, and not everybody went to universities. Big percentage of students didn't end up going to universities. But we want to do two things. We want to be able to de deliver the highest quality education to go to the best universities. But we also want to deliver an education that allows people to go straight into the workforce. My ideal scenario, my dream is that a student in high school can actually earn their own fees by doing design, coding, advisory online while they're still in high school, learning how the real world operates and generate income for them for the real world. And their skill set could be used in the world and it's not necessarily depleted by actually going to university. But going to university, there's a, a, an edge by, by going to Valencia Institute, and that's the data that we have on a student. So instead of having a certain grades that is delivered to university AAA and everybody is getting A's nowadays, we can actually qualify the engagement of a student and what's special about them and what's special about their personality. And that takes time. It's not an easy and deliverable something overnight, but we hope that we can deliver to universities something that they've never had before.
which is the Valencia Institute data sheet that is holistic and cumulative on a student beyond just the grades. So where is uh, Valencia Institute in terms of stage of development? Are they in pilot in certain countries? Where, where are you in that journey today? So it, uh, I invested last year and Rob is the CEO and the founder of it. And we partnered in launching it. And the first cohort was launched in January this year before COVID. And how is it doing? It's doing amazingly well. And it has a three-pronged approach. It has the direct online. It has the boutique campus, where it's a small cohort in a physical co-working type of space. And we have the Connect Ed program as well, where we go to school and say, give us your education program. You can take care of the physical activities that you want to do or special purpose activities that you have in your school. And we deliver a high quality education at good value for you online at the school physical department. With the government of Cape Town, where we took 30 students and to put them in a, from an existing school, we put them in a separate room and created an online learning environment for them with a mentor in that room. And they were the only group that never interrupted their education during the COVID environment. Wow, that's impressive. Um, Samir, I wanted to talk a little bit about fee structure. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening would be wondering about how this all works out in terms of numbers. I was looking at the website and it said it's somewhere around $4,000 to $7,000 annually to educate one child. I know when I lived in India, that was about the cost of what I would pay for my child to go to actually an international school, which was much more expensive than the average school in India. So can you talk to me a little bit about this fee structure and, and how it works? Well, the, the, the fee structure is measured by the quality of education delivered. So we don't think Valencia Institute just because it's online, it's actually any less. It's actually, it's better. And education and the principle of Valencia is on the sustainability development goals of the United Nations. So we integrate sustainability in, uh, in that we provide students something different and something unique in addition to their regular education. Having said that, we hope to engage low income students at a much different level uh, as well to create the biggest impact. But what you're getting with Valencia is a superior education with bigger impact on the life of the students for less cost than certain private school charge. Well, it definitely sounds like an initiative that um, you've thought through a lot and that Rob has thought through a lot. What are some of the challenges you're seeing? What do you think are the biggest challenges to making online education a success? So one of the challenges is the ability to really understand what it means online. A lot of people confuse remote learning with online education. And remote learning is by taking a teacher from existing classroom and putting them in front of a screen and say, teach. Right. That doesn't, and no wonder we see frustration, not just frustration from the teacher side, from the parent's side, because the parents are saying, is this what we're paying for? It's actually questioning the whole education value that they're getting as a result of the 
the fees. So the challenge is how do we get to scale quickly enough to convince people that this education is of higher quality and higher penetration into the students' minds to be able to grow faster, better, and with the higher standards. I see. I want to go back to something that you touched upon earlier that I didn't end up uh, going deep into, but I think it's a really important factor in making any type of education successful, and that's teachers. How is the online um, education and specifically the initiative you're spearheading going to attract the teachers that inspire and that can make a difference and that can impact education. How are you recruiting teachers for this? Well, the most important part, and this is the message that we're trying to get through, and it's not easy to really uh, accept in a sense yet, which is we're changing the requirement of what we expect from a teacher. There are people who are trying to do a great job teaching, but they're frustrated by the requirement that is put on them to do everything, to be a coach, to be a mentor, to be a tutor, to be a designer, to be an emotional support person. And this is where we are breaking the whole teaching approach into its components. We're focusing the subject matters on the learning design of the course, where the learning design Every session, every week, every classroom, what is taught, what is delivered, what graph is shared, is designed beforehand. So the teacher, when they come into the classroom, they become a facilitator. They spend their time engaging the students emotionally and engaging them in the topic. They don't need to be the topic subject expert themselves. They need to be the people who can connect with the students to engage their emotional interest in the topic. And then we have mentors who guide and measure the psychological development of the students and help guide them in the right directions. And we have tutors who support the facilitators in grading papers and in answering questions after hours. So we've broken the teaching job into multiple functions where it's not necessarily anymore required for one teacher to be the, the, the deliverer of all the students. Wonderful. Is this something that I can look into for summer programs for my children? So we were about to, to launch a summer program where it was focused on the Sustainable Development Gold Labs, where we talk about poverty and, and climate and, and four different topics. And uh, it's happening too soon, too quickly. If we don't launch it this summer, we certainly will be launching labs next summer. Well, it sounds really good. It's something I would definitely like my children to take part in. Samir, if there are entrepreneurs um, listening to this podcast that are interested in education or that are doing something in education, what advice would you give them? Don't be afraid of trying to change things that have been running the same way for a long time. I mean, there, it's very challenging because there are entrenched systems in place and perceptions, and it takes time to change that. But you don't need to convert 90% of the people initially. All you need to do is convert the one and two, and eventually you'll grow into the majority conversion. Uh, education is a topic that I encourage everybody to participate in. It's not a winner takes all. 
So we're not in a rush to be the biggest and the, and the, and the largest in the world. We want to be the largest in the world, but purely because of the impact this can have and the benefit that it has. But I encourage other people to, to get engaged in it, a different aspect of it. There are so many ways that one can be involved in online education. So just to stay at it, go after the whole market globally and uh, make sure that whatever you do has impact on people. Lovely. I think that's wonderful. So Samir, um, the last few minutes, I have something called a rapid fire round where I just ask a bit more lighter sure. and fun questions. My first question is, I can tell from talking to you that you've thought about a lot of things and I would love to have you recommend a book or two that really made an impact on you or that you found enjoyable. Interestingly, there is a book that I read many years ago, Call Me Ted by the founder of CNN and about his life. And uh, what I found interesting is as successful as he was, he really wanted to have impact on the world, um, on the media, on the climate, on the UN nuclear development. I found that book to stay with me. There are a few books that stayed with me as well. Years ago, I read the book about the founder of Visa and how he founded Visa. And he could have made a lot of money, but he decided to actually create a company that is shared among the banking system. Today, Visa is very valuable, but it's a time of the chaotic age, it's called. Very fascinating book. Some of the recent uh, books I read, I recently read Schwartzman's book, Biography, and I found that very interesting because of the way he's making impact on education with his partnership in China, MIT, and Yale University. Lovely. Those sound amazing. I definitely have to look them up. Samir, what's your favorite city in Europe? London. Okay. I'm going to ask a different question than one I've asked other guests, but what's uh, your favorite restaurant in London? I love to eat. Wow. There's a bunch of them. What I call it the home is a restaurant close to our house called Lucio. It's an Italian restaurant. It's almost like a community restaurant where the neighborhood people go and have lunch and dinner there. And that's probably one of our favorite. Uh, I eat a lot of Lebanese because of my background. And I think the whole Zouk team has had enough Lebanese. <laughs> any, good, any good Lebanese recommendation then? One we order from all the time is Noura. N-O-U-R-A. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have to look it up. Well, Samir, I truly enjoyed our conversation today. It's a topic that is very top of mind for a lot of people. Definitely me being a mother and your insights and your knowledge is, is wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.